Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Christine Carbo's Montana Mysteries combine nerve-ending suspense with serious questions of the human heart, like whether frayed lives ever mend or loneliness ever ends. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today Christine riffs on why the West is seen as a place of personal reinvention in the American psyche and why she, like Steinbeck, loves Montana. But before we talk to Christine, just a reminder that the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Christine's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Christine. Hello there, Christine, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much. It's great to be on your show as well. And just for those who aren't aware of it, you're in Montana. I'm in Auckland. So we're linking across the globe and in two different places. You're entering fall, aren't you now? Is it late summer or early fall? Um, it's just still pretty hot late summer going on. Not we No signs of fall yet. But it's uh, it will not be far away. I would say within six weeks we'll be yeah. starting to get into some fall. Okay, so beginning at the beginning, was there a once upon a time moment when you decided you wanted to write fiction? And if there was a catalyst, what was it? So, yeah, so um, difficult question for me because I don't remember any very specific kind of turning point other than one time I read this or I heard this quote actually on a video by Steven Spielberg and he had mentioned that your dreams kind of um, whisper to you. They don't shout and they just kind of whisper to you and you just have to kind of listen. And I don't think I kind of heard that whisper probably till I was late high school, beginning college, just this kind of like vague sense that I wanted to write a book or novels, in fact, and that, you know, just that I had these kind of stories in my mind that I could kind of see in my head playing out. And I had this notion that I wanted to write them down. And they weren't even really short stories. They were like long, like long stories. Like I knew that if I ever did it, I would have to be a novel. Yet I totally did not have the confidence to do that. I was not prepared to do that. I wasn't even like a huge, like well-read um, teenager at that point. I hate to admit that. I'm a little embarrassed to admit that, but I just, I kind of almost had this approach avoidance thing with reading going on for a long time because when I was little, I was actually told in third grade that you, that I couldn't read and they were thinking about holding me back because, um, because they thought I had trouble reading when 
I kind of did have a little bit of trouble reading, but mostly it was shyness because back in those days, what they would do is they'd make you stand up and read in front of the whole class. It seemed like that was the way math was done too. It was like, stand up and, you know, what's eight times seven? What's six times nine? <laughs> it was like, I would completely freeze. Well, the same thing would happen for me when they'd make me stand up and read in front of the whole class. I was just painfully shy and I couldn't do it. And so that was their barometer. Like, can she read or not? And actually I was able to read better than what they were seeing. It's just that I would kind of, um, get gun shy and I wouldn't be able to do it. So, um, so they did long story short, they didn't hold me back and I moved on. But I think that little voice was always in my head that you cannot read, you cannot read, you cannot read. And then I extended that to, therefore, if you can't read, you can't write. So who are you fooling? Why do you think, why do you have this dream? It's crazy. You're, you know, you're not that person yet. Um, it persisted and I eventually started to kind of dig in and, and, and make it happen. In fact, I ended up getting a master's degree in the English field, I think in a way to kind of prove or show to myself and maybe to that third grade teacher that, yeah, I can, I can do this. You just watch, I can do this. And so I kind of made it happen. And then from there, I got up the guts in my late, oh, mid, mid to late twenties to just write a novel, like, like a trainer novel. <laughs> and so I did, I wrote a non-genre novel and didn't really do anything with it. Wrote a second one, didn't really do anything with that. And then, um, and then I took a long break from writing, which is another story. So I'm sure that that story that you've told would be tremendously encouraging to people who've got that little dreaming dream whispering in their heads, but doubt themselves. So that that's wonderful. Um, now you mentioned these two non-genre books. For people who aren't so familiar with those terms, what would you see now as a non-genre book and a genre book? Okay, so back then when I wrote these two books, and it's been a while, I took a long break from writing. Um, mostly because my life just kind of had some major hiccups. I went through a divorce and kind of went into a single mom survival mode and thought, you know, who are you fooling up after I wrote those two books? Um, but at that time, the non-genre novel, and I don't actually think this has changed that much, although, the, you know, they do always, the industry always does play around with the titles of these things, but still like romance and sci-fi and mystery and thriller and those kinds of categories are st there are considered the genre novel although they certainly cross all sorts of boundaries and and so like back in those days maybe like a good old literary novel that was just kind of a slice of life novel where there wasn't a specific murder to solve or a specific mystery at hand, but kind of a, you were, I mean, every book has to have suspense. Otherwise you won't continue turning the pages. Like what's the story murder thing or a crime thing. I want to find out what happens to this character because I am dying to find out what, what happens yeah. in this particular story, no matter That's what right. the elements yeah. are. And so you really kind of break it down. Something that kind of sits outside of those, you know, those terms. It doesn't seem like it's a specific sci-fi or a specific romance or specific detective novel or a suspense, you know, it, it, in more kind of slice of life, maybe a little more literary, maybe not, um, but often literary, th those are often considered non-genre novels. Or I, back then I used to call it like kind of the Oprah book club <laughs> novel, you know, um, back when the Oprah book club w was a huge thing. And in fact, that's what I had in my mind. I had this dream that I was going to write this non-genre kind of semi-literary novel that Oprah was going to pick. <laughs> that didn't happen. <laughs> 
So your series now, they would come into the genre area, but they are extremely complex genre, aren't they? They're probably more than one. You've described them as police procedural meets domestic suspense, domestic suspense meets the wild because there's a very big part that nature plays in them. So you're kind of almost handling three subgenres at, at the same time, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. At least with this, the so I've written four novels in the um, mystery genre, fiction genre, we could call it. Um, my fourth one was called A Sharp Solitude. So I considered that one that kind of crossover between all three of those because I had a particular protagonist who was able who was qualified to kind of go about solving the crime in the way that a detective would or a you know who was qualified she wasn't just a sleuth you know just your average housewife or somebody just you know or a reporter or somebody that you know anyway it can be anyone who can be a sleuth right but she you know she happened to be an, a local FBI agent she was qualified to do an investigation yet she was not handed the investigation because it involved um, an ex of hers who wasn't her husband, but it happens to be the father of her child. And so she gets a little too, cl she's too close to it for, to professionally go about investigating that. So she ends up kind of snooping around the edges, sort of like a sleuth would to solve it. Yet she was, but she's trained. So she's got, so there's this police procedural element to it. Yet she's very involved with it, very emotionally, very close to it. And so hence comes the kind of, um, you know, uh, domestic suspense or, and, and people play with that, that particular well. So like I said, they kind of all smear together sometimes, Yeah. yeah. but, um, yeah. Um, yeah. the yeah. other novels, the, the three before that, I tend to deal with characters that have uh, pretty serious, um, past issues or traumas that they bring into present stories. And when I do that, I feel like it, you know, I get a little psychological with that and get into the character's head a lot and go pretty deeply. And so I think that tends to pull them out of, um, just that kind of quick mystery read as well. Yes. They're, they're deeper books. And they're also an ensemble series. They don't have one main protagonist who follows through in all four books. You you have someone who might have been a subsidiary character in one book becomes the lead character in the next. And you've said you got that idea partly from Tana French and her Dublin murder series. So I guess, did you start out, you just basically one wrote one book and then thought, how can I fit another one in how can I do book two is that how it works exactly it really was it's kind of actually funny because I think as a new author who lives in Montana who didn't really know the industry I mean it's it, it so I, I alluded earlier to the fact that I took like a 10-year break from writing after I wrote those two non-genre novels and that was because my life fell apart a bit and um I kind of just thought, well, who am I fooling? I'm not going to do this writing thing. I'm going to just be serious, take care of my little boy. Um, do I got into some technical writing and, and it was very monotonous and I felt like I didn't really have time to, or, or the energy to write creatively at the end of the day on my laptop or computer after being on it all day for technical writing and um, some other jobs. I continued to teach at a community college, but that was 
was a, I was adjunct. And so I didn't make a lot of money doing that. Um, so, you know, I was just kind of in that mode of uh, a little bit of a survival mode. And so when I came back to writing, when I decided, okay, I'm going to, you know, this whisper that I was referring to earlier is loud enough now that, um, that I was wrong. I couldn't just quit this. I thought I could just write those two novels and say, okay, that was done. It wasn't that big of a dream. It's, it's fine. Um, it wasn't meant for me. Um, that I was wrong. And it was, it just kind of, the voice got a little louder and a little louder that this is what you want to do. This is what you need to do. And so when I kind of came to grips with that, came to terms with it and decided to dive back into the world of creative writing, I was very deliberate about it. And I thought, you know, here I am 10 years later, I don't want to write a trainer novel. I don't want to write a, you know, a, a non-genre novel that I just kind of hope and pray somehow lands up on Oprah, sure. you know, picks. So I, um, thought you need, and what I like to read a, a lot is, um, crime fiction. And so I dove in very deliberately. I'm going to write a crime fiction book, but it wasn't easy because I have no law enforcement background and I didn't know a soul who did. Nobody in my family does. And so I had to research that and figure that out and interview some people and kind of dive in. And that's always a precarious thing to do when you're new, because it's like, well, I want to write this book. A lot of people say they want to write books. And I think sometimes people even roll their eyes at people that say they want to write books. Like, yeah, really? Okay. Do I really want to waste my time talking to you? Cause you want to write a book. Yeah. Right. But, um, but every, but that was just in my head because honestly, everybody was super nice and super helpful and they didn't really care if it ever came to fruition or not. They wanted to talk about what they do. And so, so I met some lovely people who helped me out with understanding law enforcement and decided I was going to write a book that um, was set in my area so that I could kind of, uh, you know, write what I knew, so to speak. And um, so I picked Glacier National Park, which is not very far from where I am. I'm in Whitefish, Montana. And um, and I love books that have a strong sense of place and setting. And I felt, well, what better place than Glacier National Park, which is kind of the crown of the continent here in the United States, and um, went from there. So yeah, so setting came first for me. That was, um, well, crime fiction came first and then setting after that. And you've been complimented on the setting, that it, it is almost like another character in the book. It certainly is a looming presence. Um was that hard to write? You have been compared to people like um, Cheryl Strayed and her wild, her story about walking the Appalachian Trail. Do, do you do much walking yourself and do you get out there much yourself? Um, you know, it's funny. I've, I've hiked a ton in Montana and mo mostly in Glacier National Park and other surrounding areas um, in the, you know, near the Continental Divide where I am. However, um, there's a lot of places in Montana that I have not um, hiked yet. I mean, um, because there's so much to do just in my area in the Northwest, but there are places that, you know, around Bozeman or Missoula or even Eastern Montana that have some great places to hike in mountains that I, you know, would probably want to explore even before I tried to go over to, you know, even, you know, to the, to the other trails in California or Alaska. So, but I have hiked in California, just not on that trail. I mean, we'll see. It might happen since the writing thing has taken over. It, it, my hiking has um, 
drastically been impacted. <laughs> All my recreational things have drastically been impacted. I've there's I've just become very busy as an author, and you know there's just a lot to do and a lot of traveling to do, and um and I love it. I just I love it. I enjoy it so much. But I can say that some of the some of the recreating in Montana has taken a little bit of a backseat. Sounds like you'd be of a mind with. John Steinbeck, who uh, you have quoted as saying that in the travels of, with Charlie, he said that he's in love with Montana, that he admires other states, he respects other states, but there's something that sets Montana apart. What would you say for you that something is? Oh, well, you know, the scenery is go- gorgeous where I live, um, very beautiful, and you know, we're not very heavily populated, which might bug some people. Um, you know, sometimes people don't want to be in places where there's not a lot of other people around, but some people really love the fact that we have less than a million people in a very big state. And so it just feels like you have a lot of space and a lot of room to explore and just a really sense that you're very close to nature in a way that, Maybe you don't feel if you're around concrete all the time and big buildings. And so, um, you know, it's just lifestyle choices. I think that, I don't know, I, I just met a guy the other day who said, who had just moved here from Arizona. And I said, oh, you know, why'd you choose to move here? And he just said, he said, well, you know, I came, I saw, I wanted to stay. And it's like, <laughs> there's a lot of people that are in that boat. They come, they visit, they want to stay. And I don't know what it is exactly about where I live, but I think it's just a simpler life, maybe in some ways, traffic, you know, knock on wood at this point, because we're so under, you know, we're not hugely populated is in control still. I mean, we've certainly got development going up like crazy, like, like any town in the U S uh, any kind of touristy town does. We've, we've, I've really seen this place grow in, in all the time that I've been here, but it's, um, and, you know, and develop, but it's still, you know, it's still, it's not like being stuck on the highways or the subways or, I mean, you just, it's, you have freedom, I guess. To, and, and schools, um, feel relatively safe, um, in, in Montana yeah. as well. Although, you know, that could turn on a dime with, with what the U S problem, what the problems are in the U S yes. with, with yeah. shootings. There's so. another deeper theme too, perhaps if we just look at it in a slightly wider frame of the West, you've seen the West as a place for personal reinvention. And I think that comes through in your stories. Has it been that for you personally as well? Um, so I moved to Montana with my family when I was in about eighth grade. So I, I feel like I was young enough where I wasn't really put into that place of personal reinvention that I feel like I've met so many other people that have been in that situation where they move here literally because they are in the that uh-huh. kind of frame of mind where they need to rediscover themselves or find a different way of life or just do something different. And, you know, so in a, in a way, I feel like my family was in that spot. So my mom and dad, my dad actually had a really great job at the University of Florida as a chief, at, um, as chief of neuropathology in um, Gainesville, Florida. And he just kind of said, let's go, let's go to the mountains, let's go west, let's, um, let's do it. And he and my mom decided that would be a good thing. And they both 
wanted to leave the the Florida heat and the you know and 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 be in the mountains and so so we moved here as a family and um it was kind of hard for me to move at that age but it was you know but you know I was eighth grade I was resilient and I I I I, I be, you know, Montana became my home very quickly and I fell in love with it very quickly, even though I missed the beaches and the ocean and all that. But I, I feel like maybe that was a thing for my dad a little bit, you know, and my mom both. They, you know, this place of um, of going west and rediscovering themselves and starting kind of fresh. And I feel like I met a lot of people in my life who have done that. And um in Montana seems that I, I guess there's kind of a manifest destiny element to it. This, this sense in America that if you go West, you can kind of strike it rich or, you know, go West and, you know, mine for gold or go West and, you know, cut trees down or go West and we'll solve our economic problems or go West. And, um, uh, you know, even in, in, I don't know how it is where, where you are, but there's all these schools for troubled kids. And I have a, my second book focuses on that a little bit. There's all these schools out West for troubled teens where um, families from around America, but mostly the East Coast who have, you know, maybe kids on drugs or other problems where they'll send them out to these schools in Utah or Montana or Idaho and they're like literally wilderness schools where the kids are, you know, kind of taught to be more self self sufficient. And there's this idea that that's going to solve these emotional problems with these kids. And you know, I mean, there's some really great schools out here for that, but there's some really bad ones too. Because let's face it, sending your kid west is not going to solve their drug <laughs> problems. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, fresh air doesn't always. Uh, do the trick. It sometimes does, but not always. And so I feel like there's like, you know, there's that myth in, in the United States that, you know, that it's still to this day after so long, this, this magical, mysterious thing to go West, you know, to go to the mountains. And, um, I kind of wanted to explore, you know, what happened, what, what would happen if you, you know, if to uh, my first book, explores a family that actually, like I did, moves from Florida out here and things go drastically wrong and, you know, what that feels like for the family. And then my second book, like I said, involves one of these schools and that goes drastically wrong. And so I just kind of wanted to, to play with that theme a little, like, you know, you go West, but what happens when it doesn't work out? Yeah. Yeah. But moving away from um, the specific books to a more general focus, what one thing have you done, perhaps more than any other, is the secret of your success? Um, you know, I think um, I think the simple answer to that is saying yes to things. Um, you know, like like I said, I mean, I actually don't think I fully answered your question when you were talking about the ensemble series and Town of French. But I, you know, I kind of got off on this tangent about little old me in Montana who didn't know a thing about the publishing world and 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 just had put it put the writing thing away for so long that when I jumped back into it and was very deliberate about it, I just, I did it the traditional way. I queried agents, I you know, Googled them online and figured out who I could write to and, and bought, you know, the big uh, directory that's full of agents' names and in New York and, you know, and just sent queries and thought, you know, I'm going to 
see if I can just get an agent, get people to read this manuscript. And, and, and I, you know, I didn't have connections. I didn't even know that there were conferences that you specific conferences in the U S that you can go to, to network. I mean, I knew there were writing conferences, but I didn't know there were like crime fiction, you know, genre literature conferences for romance and crime fiction and all that. That's how green I was. And so when I, um, when I started to discover that, I, I dove into that and started to go to these conferences and meet people and then, which was hugely helpful to network that way. But in that networking, people end up asking you to do things, you know, can you help out with this or can you write this column or, or your publisher may ask you, you know, for your debut novel, can you also write something that we can publish in a magazine or in something else? And at first, you know, if you, you know, you write these novels and you think, well, I'm a seasoned writer. I've written a novel, <laughs> but you're really not. I mean, it takes a lot more than one novel to make yourself a seasoned writer. And so it's scary. It's like, oh, I don't know if I could do this. I mean, I don't know. I've never written a short story or I don't know. I've never written an article. I'm not a journalist. I just had this dream and I wrote a novel. So, um, so I think it's, it's scary, but you have to kind of force yourself to go, yes, yes, I will do that. And so, or yes, I will take that position or yes, I will sit in on this committee or yes, you know, and so that you're yes, yes, yes. And the more you say yes, the more you meet people, the more things come your way and you really are going to be fine. I mean, I really, you know, you just learn that the more you say yes, the more easy it gets to partake in all this stuff and the more comfortable it gets. And so, so I think that's a, that's you know, you have to fight that urge to like block yourself off and be shy about stuff. It's, it's, it's easy to do sometimes, but, um, if you're, you know, if you're not that personality that's really out there, then I think, but you still need to remember to say yes to as much as you can to get yourself out there. Those are fighting words from someone who said that as a little girl, they were very shy. You, you really seem to have overcome that fantastically during your life. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I have. I mean, you know, even teaching, I taught, like, uh, like I mentioned, I taught uh, English classes, literature, linguistics at the community college for years. And I think that really helped me as well, standing up in front of classrooms um, every semester for years and meeting new, meeting new students and, you know, ser serving on committees at the college and having to speak my mind and speak out loud, all that stuff really helped me overcome that kind of a thing as well. And uh, fantastic, yeah. yeah. Look, turning to Christine as reader, because this series is called The Joys of Binge Reading, we like to share books that other people might like to read. It's part, it was partly started by that um, liking, that sort of fad almost for, for series reads that's been encouraged by the digital publishing era. So, um, are you a binge reader now? And if you are, who are your favorite authors to binge read? Okay, so really great question. And I read all the time because I don't feel like you can be in this business without reading all the time. But be I think almost because I'm in this business, I have strayed away from binge reading, if that makes sense, because there's so much to keep up with. So like, you know, I meant just mentioned going to conferences and meeting people, and then suddenly you've got you know, 20 people that you've just met that would like you to read their book or, you know, or you, you just want to because you've met them and you found them interesting and you found their stories interesting. So, um, so it, it makes it harder to go, okay, I'm going to sit down and read, you know, um, um, 20 books by one author 
<laughs> it, yeah. it makes it much harder because it's like, oh, I want to read that author and that author and that author and that person and that person who's just getting started and that debut. And, and so it's just like you books everywhere from every angle. And I love it. So I don't want to make it sound like it's as chaotic as it is, but it is a little chaotic. And so, um, so I end up reading a ton, but not necessarily just one author over and over and over. But I can tell you that I read everything to circle back to ton of French. I can read, I'll read everything that she puts out. And I love, um, I love the darkness of Mo Hader's books as well. I'm a little, I'm a little drawn to the dark. Um, and so I will read all of Mo Hader's books and, you know, if, if a new one comes out and, um, I really enjoy, uh, Elizabeth George and Laura Lipman and Megan Abbott. I mean, I, there's a lot that I'll, you know, every time there's a book that comes out, I will make sure that I read it. Uh, I think you had a, a Jim, James Ziskin on your show. I love to read his, his series as well. And so, you know, there's certain series where you can kind of keep up, up with where as the books come out, I'll make sure that I read them. But if I've, if I'm way behind, like somebody's got a series out that has 15 books, sometimes I don't dive in because it's almost like, well, I can't do that. I've got too many other on my TBR pile. However, um, and then another um, author, I always like to throw a name out of somebody maybe that that you know isn't as huge as Tana French or Elizabeth George, but is our is a wonderful writer. And um, so I'd like to throw Mark Stevens' name out. He's got a series that's set in in the Colorado Rockies, and um, it's called the Allison Coyle Mystery Series. And um, it, a lot of fun and really sharp, great writing. And so um, I. I uh, every time he comes out with something, I will make sure to read that as well. Oh, that sounds great. I must look him up. Um, so we're coming to the end of our time together, circling around, looking from beginning to end. At this stage in your career, if you were doing it all again, what would you change, if anything? Well, I think, like I said, I didn't, I was so green when I got into it. And if I could change that, like if I, if I had known more about the industry, when I dove into it, like it, if I could have gone to some of the conferences like three years before I got published and started already along that path of making connections and networking and all that, I think it could have been really helpful. I think it, it, it's really great to be able to, um, kind of already have that networking and platform in place a little bit before you get the chance to get published. So that's, that's a tip for, for writers that are wanting to get published, but maybe aren't there, but you know, are thinking you got to break in before you go to the conferences that you don't have to, you can go to them way well before you ever get a publishing contract. So that's one thing I would try and do differently. I just, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And I, I was in Montana and I just didn't know. So that's just kind of the way it went for me. And, um, and I would like to finish telling you my story though, about Tana French oh, and the sorry. ensemble yeah, series. So, yeah, yeah. so because I'm in Montana and I didn't know when I went out to meet my agent in New York and I met a couple different editors who had made offers on my first book called the wild inside. Um, I just had this idea that, you know, I was going to maybe get a contract and, and I was going to get published and I might see one book on the shelf 
you know, on the shelves of bookstores. And, and I think in my mind, because I was so green, I wasn't really thinking about, I'm going to have another and another and another. And so when I met the editor said, well, what's next? You know, or, and because I had this beautiful, magnificent grizzly bear that kind of made um, an appearance in my first book, um, she was really hooked on that grizzly bear. And she's like, so what's next? And what animal are you going to have next? And I was just sitting there going, um, I wasn't planning on having another animal. But in my mind, I'm thinking, I don't want to blow this. I don't want to blow this. So I was like, um, Wolverines. <laughs> so I just threw that out there and lo and behold, my next book was about, um, you know, it had this element of a Wolverine researcher who ends up missing and some, you know, and the elements of the school thing that I told you about earlier. And so then I was able to pluck a side character from there. And yeah, so you, I, yeah, to answer your question finally is that, I, it it, it kind of did happen after the fact. And I kind of just thought, well, that formula lo- worked really well for Tana French. And I love that formula because I feel like I'm reading standalones, but feel like I'm in the same universe at the same time. And I love standalone novels. And so I also love to write standalones because I like to play through an entire character arc. And so doing that allowed me to um, kind of keep the same universe, which I love, but play through the entire character arc each time in a different story. Yeah. Hey, that's a great story. And it leads very well to our, one of our last questions. And that is what's next for Christine, the writer now. So what's next? So, um, you know, and along with that ensemble series is there's so many great things about it that work well for me, but there are a few glitches. And one of those glitches is that if you don't, if you have an idea, but it doesn't really match one of your side characters that you've had, you, then you're then you're like, okay, I'm going to have to break that formula a little bit. And so right now I'm actually working on a book that has uh, a new character in it that has not yet been er- introduced in the other books. But fear not, my universe is, I mean, this. I, I, not all my stories are in Glacier National Park. They're kind of in and around Glacier and in, you know, in Montana, Northwest Montana, my area. So I keep, I'm, I'm keeping that consistent, but I'm introducing a new character in, in, a, in a book I'm working on now. I'm also working on a short story as well for an anthology um, that I've been asked to do, uh, one that's um, kind of about Montana spaces, which has been kind of uh, fun for me to dive into that a little bit because, um, yeah, here we are back to that. Make sure you say yes kind of thing. <laughs> And yeah. so the new book will be part of the Glacier Park series, though, will it? Or is it a standalone? Um, you know, I... You haven't quite decided. Am, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit trying to figure all that out right now. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah. I can understand that, yes. Because you don't want to squeeze something that's naturally developing in one direction into the formula for the mystery series if it if it isn't going to quite fit I mean I think that would make you uncomfortable as a writer wouldn't it exactly that that's precisely where I'm at so I'm at a point where it's like how exactly how I continue forward with it and how I massage or change or revise or not change revise what I've already written yes sure yeah so we are really now coming to the end of our time together Where can readers find you online, Christine? Are you active online? Uh, Yes. So um, I've got, uh, you know, at Christine underscore Carbo on Twitter, uh, Christine Carbo 
that's C-A-R-B-O, like kind of like carbohydrate, <laughs> um, uh, Christine Carbo author for Facebook, and then christinecarbo.com for my website. And then I have got Instagram also. Um, and, you know, I'm spacing that one out. I think that one is also a Christine underscore. I can check really quick here. It, it, oh, it's christine.carbo for the Instagram. So yeah, come to Instagram and see my pictures of Montana. (laughs) That's wonderful, Christine. Look, thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful to talk. Oh, thank you so much for taking the time to get to know me, interview me and ask such amazing questions. Really great questions. I've enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, services at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.